0: Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. The war in Afghanistan is now over, so said President Joe Biden this week as the last American troops returned home almost 20 years to the day after the U.S.-led invasion of Afghanistan and the overthrow of the Taliban. That mission, Biden insists, has been a success. But has it really the Western-backed Afghan government collapsed within days after all those 20 years of effort. Taliban are back in power. That's 20 years of effort, more than $65 billion of direct aid. From the U.S. alone, $2 trillion of spending, all that Gone in days. The evacuation of international troops and those who'd helped the alliance veered from the shambolic to the calamitous. The future for many Afghans, particularly women, is looking deeply alarming, and the blame game in Britain and beyond is raging. So, what happens now? Well, joining me to look at the extraordinary events of what has hardly been a quiet summer month is a panel who've got the inside track on how government operates during times of international crisis and how major decisions on defence, security and foreign affairs are taken. Alex Thomas is our programme director for all things to do with the civil service and a former official at the Cabinet Office. Hi, Alex. Hello, Bronwyn. And I'm delighted that we're joined by Dan Saber, Defence and Security Editor at The Guardian, and Lucy Fisher, Deputy Political Editor at The Daily Telegraph and former Defence Editor at The Times, and they're both joining us from the lobby. Hi to both of you. Hi, Bronwyn. Hiya. Summers are, as I was saying, as politicians and civil servants hope, a change for a breather, not this one. Loads to talk about. Let's begin by looking at what went wrong and who is to blame. Dan, maybe you can kick it off for us. Joe Biden is obviously defiant. Polls suggest Americans back his decision, politically, at least for a domestic audience. Has he got this right?
1: I think he probably does actually. I mean I mean fundamentally this flows from a decision taken, you know, by Donald Trump and, and by Joe Biden, which was in Trump's case was to engage and do a peace deal with the Taliban in February twenty twenty, effectively to sort of effectively say to him, Stop you know, stop attacking us and, and we'll be on a pathway to withdrawal out of the country and then well, you know, you guys can take it from there in effect, hopefully negotiate some sort of deal with the Afghan government, the Ghani government that we've left behind. And that was something that Joe Biden equally eagerly stuck to. In the spring of this year, he said that that the US was going to leave and sort of picked out the sort of symbolic date of 9-11. You know, American public opinion and Biden himself personally sort of tired of this idea of forever wars. It's been a 20 year long engagement in Afghanistan. And I think if you construct it as a conventional war, it feels like an awfully long time to be in a country. And isn't it time we've reached the point where the Afghan government, we can see whether it stands on its own two feet. Once you've taken that decision, though, you know, one can debate that uh, for, for, for quite some time. and I'm sure we will. But then there's an awful lot of things flowed from it, and I think what is certainly true is that the retreat and withdrawal was sort of chaotically, badly handled. A string of mistakes were made along the way, which you know went on. You know, allied with this extraordinary wishful thinking that the Afghan government would do better than it did. And what ultimately happened was he had a chaotic and messy retreat in which the US, for example, gave up some of its best military assets, like Bagram Air base, but then created a scenario in which left the Afghan government without weakly defended or weakly supported by US forces, the Taliban swept in with astonishing speed, far faster than anybody thought, and Kabul fell, and that precipitated this massive crisis at the airport where suddenly thousands of people who had been part of the Western way of life, if you like, and have bought into the US that government panicked, headed to the airport, and you created this crisis situation at the airport and this emergency evacuation.
0: And, and a lot left behind, as he's been saying. But I, it seems to me you're absolutely right in the way you're describing American. Uh, political opinion. I'm very struck by how the media, there's been obviously a lot of criticism of the exit itself and whether more people could have been rescued. But there is enormous support for ending the war now, much more than we're hearing over here. We're hearing a lot of criticism of the US over here, but over there, pretty solid public support.
1: I, well, I think in Britain, I think if the if the choice had been posted a bit differently, Ben Wallace and the UK have alluded to this that that they didn't want the Americans. They didn't. They said quite clearly they didn't want the Americans to leave, and they alluded to the idea that Britain could try and create an alternative force with NATO allies. I mean, colossally optimistic, but let's just sort of take it seriously for a second. If it got to the point where Britain was going to commit more troops, and that was going to be presented to the British public, I'm not very sure the British public would have gone for that a sort of deeper military engagement in Afghanistan. What, what people wanted to see was an ongoing humanitarian engagement. But that's difficult when the Taliban are taking up arms against you.
0: That's a very good point. So Lucy, take us to the UK now, and we had Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, up before the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee yesterday in a big um, defensive mode, but he said he was, he was blaming British intelligence, others' intelligence, for the central assessment that Kabul was unlikely to fall in two, 2021, um, uh, as well as all kinds of decisions. What did you make of that?
2: Well, uh, I think the particularly instructive uh, thing was Dominic Raab trying to blame military intelligence And that really speaks to the extraordinary psychodrama between the Foreign Office and the Ministry of Defence that has erupted over the missteps in the handling of this final evacuation stage uh, that that Dan's described well. Um, I I think that there are, you know, the charge of buck passing um, is only the latest to be levied against Dominic Raab. You know, his woes started when he was found to be on holiday on the beach in Crete uh, on the day that Kabul fell latterly emerged that he was not available to take a call that day about evacuation of Afghan interpreters who'd worked with British forces. Since then, lots of um, you know questions asked about why on earth and um, Britain was not prepared for the speed at which the Taliban took over Afghanistan. And to me, one thing that that's really interesting that I've heard from contacts in military and defence circles, is their insistence that in fact, actually, the raw intelligence was absolutely correct. It did predict that the Taliban coup would be swift uh, swift and ruthless. But what happened was when that intelligence was fed into the, the machine of analysis and interpretation, as it went up the ladder, something went wildly wrong. Uh, and it's been posited to me that, you know, it, it seems that there was an element of politicization in the interpretation of that intelligence, that people higher up the food chain were unwilling um, to perhaps see themselves or to tell their superiors that the picture was quite so bleak.
0: Alex, what do you make of the blame game that's been going on in Whitehall and played out in the papers for the past week or so about who is to blame? Just look at the exit uh, blame game, if you like.
3: Yeah, I think it's Pretty extraordinary, actually. Partly because it's so unconcealed. It's very common for there to be disputes or tetchiness between government departments, but it's pretty rare for a foreign secretary to be so clearly putting the blame on the Ministry of Defence, and to some extent vice versa. I mean, I can only think it's it's partly come down to confusion of roles and responsibilities on the ground. I mean, uh, Raab has been pointing to sort of different schemes for uh, evacuating Afghan refugees that are run by the MOD. And so is there a bit of a confusion about roles there? And then there, obviously there's a kind of brutal political blame game going on. I guess the other dynamic that's that's at play in that is is the military civilian one. Ben Wallace, as Defence Secretary, has placed himself squarely on the sort of side of the military, and most of the public debate in Parliament and elsewhere has been very sort of prominent with military voices in it. And then there's the Foreign Office representing the kind of civilian diplomat, if you like. Of course, it's not not always that straightforward. And the Ambassador uh, Foreign Office official in, in Afghanistan has, has emerged very well from this, but I, I I think it's obviously pretty unedifying. It's almost bound to mean that people are tripping up over each other even before you get onto the uh, politics of it. But I, I also wonder whether it means that the system as a whole is undervaluing some of the kind of geopolitical diplomatic foreign office advice that is coming in and really focusing on the on the, on the military side. That's been much more prominent than, than it might have been in the, in the last few weeks.
0: Or is it indeed, and that's a very good point, is it indeed, though, that the Foreign Office itself might uh, have been undervalued and underinvested in? I mean, if you look at some of the mistakes that have gone into this chaotic exit or what we seem to see as the mistakes now... um, it looks like a lack of planning over many months. Is that something that we reasonably can hold at the door of the Foreign Office?
3: I think overall you can. The MOD and the military has their role in in the mission, but the overall sort of presence in Afghanistan, Britain's interest in Afghanistan ultimately comes to the the Foreign Secretary's door. There's been criticism for uh, many years, a decade or two about the Foreign Office sort of steadily being uh, hollowed out, victim of Whitehall uh, efficiency rounds and and, and having less sort of status and reduced expertise sort of related to that. But I was very interested in what Lucy was saying there about the intelligence potentially being watered down. That, that has sort of resonances of Iraq and the Chilcot inquiry. But there are two ways that that intelligence might have got diluted. One is a sort of overt politicization, as, as Lucy was suggesting. The other is almost a kind of overreaction to some of the post-Iraq uh, failures where raw intelligence was treated as too authoritative. Uh, and actually the, the process, the Joint Intelligence Committee, the process of Stilling that evidence and analysing it has has been given a lot of attention in recent uh, in recent years. So there may be lessons to learn there that that, that that process isn't working as well as it as it should be.
1: Well, I'd like to come in on that intelligence point actually, and and, and the points that have been raised because um, I was at a briefing with Sir Nick Carter, the head of the Armed Forces, sort of about seven weeks ago now, at the beginning of at the beginning of July. And and uh, you know, Lucy talk about politicisation, I think it really felt like sort of talk about saying the thing that the bosses and the media want to hear. So really the focus was about at that stage it was about kind of media management about Afghanistan it was everything's going to be alright guys so what Nick Carter took us through a number of scenarios for what would happen in Af- Afghanistan and there was his residual oh yeah of course it's possible the Taliban might take over Scenario. It's not that they didn't say it, but it was just that they they, they talked up two other scenarios, return to warlordism was one uh, and the primary scenario which is uh, appeared to be what they believed in and, and remember Nick Carter spends a lot of time in Afghanistan he's been a kind of effectively a sort of PMM Talked to the government an awful lot, served there of course, but the primary scenario that Nick Clegg talking about some sort of negotiated some sort of negotiated deal that there will be a negotiated deal between the Ghani government and the Taliban that they would kind of fight each other to a standstill and the true metal of the Afghan army would be seen and all would be kind of, all all would be sort of okay. This was posited, and Boris Johnson said Boris Johnson echoed this line in the in the House of Commons that day, which is the last debate on Afghanistan before the crisis and before recess. So you, you really got a case at that level at the top level level and and you have to ask what happens at these sort of you know National Security Council meetings. But at that level, you know, Nick Carter, probably the you know the person in government who's thought to know the most about Afghanistan, is kind of saying exactly what the PM wants slash needs to hear in order to say, let's leave the country, it'll be okay. Thank you very much.
0: Well just sticking on this theme of what went wrong and who's to blame, Dan, if you take us back to the, the beginning of it, Tony Blair giving Britain's assent for joining this, this force uh, to try and rid Afghanistan of, uh, of the um, perpetrators of 9-11. And he gave, right in the beginning, he gave as one of his reasons for, for going in, not just solidarity, but also doing something about the drugs trade all the, the opium from Afghanistan, the world's largest producer, ending up and um, much of it ending up on Britain's streets. How much do you think mistakes went back to the beginning in that kind of perspective, that kind of ambition?
1: I think there are some people who think in the early phases there were, um, once the US and the UK had landed and sort of knocked out the Taliban from Kabul and, and, and sort of won the initial phase of the war, pushed the Taliban back to the margins of the country. I think there are some people who think there might have been perhaps an opportunity for a peace deal to bring the Taliban back into a unity government. That was something that... The U.S. president at the time, George W. Bush, was against. You know, that was certainly one idea. I think what then happened was we got dragged into this long period of sort of somewhere between conflict, never-ending conflict and nation-building. It was sort of sometimes one, sometimes the other, depending a bit on the sort of intensity of the Taliban resistance. And I think the kind of in that sense the mission got confused. And, and I think there's an argument that 20 years is, is is nothing in terms of peacekeeping or stabilization. And you would keep, you know, and, and, and U.S. troops are kept in places like I mean the U.S. troops in Germany, you know, South Korea, you know, they're all pla- parts of the world where there've been historic conflicts where, where where troops remain. And and it might be logical, it might be logical and sensible for them to do so if if your mission is a kind of sort of long term. If your mission is a long term stabilization mission. And I think I would argue that essentially nobody was quite clear why we're in Afghanistan. It was selling mm-hmm. different things at different times. And I think if it was built as a war, it felt like a very long war. But if it was built as a sort of reconstruction and, and an, almost a sort of development mission with a military edge, then perhaps, you know, it might have been more sustainable politically.
0: That's a really good way of putting it. Lucy, what do you make in particular of the two thousand and six decision by Britain to take on responsibility for Helmand province?
2: Oh, well well in, in the harsh light of day where we're standing now, it seems pretty disastrous. You know, not not terribly many gains um, that were initially made there sustained, you know, a lot of criminations about the UK sort of choosing which part of the country they take late, so being left with with Helmand rather than, than taking on an area that the UK might have had a better uh, chance at holding and reforming in a more constructive and long-term way. But I think, as Dan says, you know, that the mission was confused. I don't think there's been a kind of strategic clarity that's needed, but it, it's also kind of my view that it's not beyond the the wit of politicians to have successfully reframed it to the public. And I'm thinking mainly of, you know, President Biden, I've been sort of disappointed that he seemed to just fall so so easily and happily into into the narrative of forever wars. You know that was you know the initial framing of Donald Trump. You know I think that wasn't a necessity. It's something that he decided to go along with. Of course, shaped by his own long standing views on Afghanistan, his views on Vietnam. There's obviously his personal politics playing into it. But but I think that there. There could have been a way for the West to have um, to have stayed, had a low level presence, not costing very much money, not costing much if anything in the way of Western lives. You know, we mustn't forget that in recent years, it has vastly been the case that it's Afghan um, National Army and security forces um, that have lost their lives on the front line trying to provide security to the country.
0: Well, that, that's a point um, a columnist in the New York Times made this this morning saying, look, um, it may have been no uh, American lives lost recently, but, um, you know, 15,000 or so Afghan lives, military lives have been lost recently. And, and it wasn't costless staying there and it easily could have escalated. What Do you think anything has been achieved in these 20 years?
2: I mean, yeah, 3.6 million girls have had education. Obviously, whether that continues under the Taliban looks severely in doubt. But you can't take away that those those girls have uh, have been educated. There has been a degree of stability in the region. But again, I just you know, it's not clear that any of that will be sustained in the long term. You know, and this isn't just a crisis for Afghanistan. It is a crisis potentially for the region. I think you know, the UN's estimate that up to half a million afghans will flood out of land borders by christmas is incredibly worrying you know the fact that pakistan has accepted four million afghan refugees since the end of the 1970s and the afghan soviet war means it's unsurprising islamabad is very very wary uh, about kind of the new exodus um, arriving inside its border And I think circling back to what we were talking about at the beginning, that just makes the lack of pitch rolling by the Foreign Office all the more remarkable. I must admit, my jaw was on the floor reading at the weekend the claims in the Sunday Times that Rob and the Foreign Office, you know, the the, the highest echelons of it, had not made a single call to either the Pakistani or Afghan foreign ministries in the past six months preceding the short-term two-week evacuation crisis. And that was a claim that, that, you know, wasn't wasn't contradicted by the foreigners, mm. so I can only assume was mm. true. Mm.
0: Dan, do you think the world is a safer place now, or is the West specifically safer from terrorism?
1: Well, I think that... It is easy to say that, that that twenty years achieved nothing and 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 boy, if I was a veteran of the afghan campaign and i really i, I really feel really feel for anyone who served in the British forces or other forces in the conflict because you're asking yourself what, the, what you know my government sent me in to fight and what on earth was it for you know there's a sort of strong sense of what might that conflict have been for, having said that. It was the case for 20 years. You know, Al-Qaeda was operating out of of Afghanistan. There were terror training camps in the country. The environment pre-2001 was very different. The space was denied to terror groups. That country was largely, you know, Western-controlled and dominated. And so you know we've seen what happens when all around you know the middle east and and parts of africa when states collapse you get ungoverned spaces emerge we've seen what happened in syria somalia yemen mali the sahel potentially maybe northern mozambique you know we can see what's happening in all these places and that's where jihadism can emerge and and a certain type of international not just a local jihadism which is bad enough but the kind of international jihadism that threatens the west so yes in one sense the massive effort in afghanistan pegged that back possibly at the cost of of other interventions in other places. So in that sense, it had a value. But the absolutely critical test will be now – uh, How the Taliban government behaves uh, vis-a-vis the terror groups that might want to operate in this country, in particular ISIS-K or ISIS KP, the local ISIS affiliate that's operating there, that conducted the the, that took responsibility for the wretched airport attack you mentioned earlier that Mm. killed nearly 200 Mm. people, including 13 U.S. Marines. This is now an absolutely crucial moment, and I think what is really interesting is how much how strong the diplomatic embrace of the Taliban is at the moment by the U.S. Talk of intelligence sharing. Maybe they'll do Mm. drone strikes. Based on mm. an info they get from the Taliban, Britain and other countries now rushing to meet Taliban leaders in the political office in in, in Qatar through sort of classic back channel routes. So, how this develops will be really really interesting, and this is the crucial point.
0: All right. Well, we'll come on to that in a moment. But Alex, do you think there should be an inquiry in Britain? Well, I think the last fifty minutes of discussion have
3: shown there are a lot of lessons to learn. I I don't think the world is crying out for a sort of multi volume Chilcot style inquiry as happened into Iraq, but I definitely think throughout the whole period of engagement, as we've been discussing, there are a lot of lessons to learn that could helpfully be crystallized into some form of official inquiry from the uh, strategic intent after the original um, uh, uh, invasion of Afghanistan back in 2001, all the way through the geopolitical misjudgments and absences that we were uh, talking about, the lack of clearly defined exit strategy, uh, intelligence failures um, around that. It, it's going back away a, a now, but go back sort of five, ten years. There's a lot of discussion about how well equipped troops in Afghanistan and and Iraq were. How do we deal with those sorts of things? And I also think there's something about the, the sort of seductive politician military uh, relationship uh, that that offers them almost in the moment an escape from some of the complexities of day to day policy making. The uncertainties that we've seen, you know, the memoirs of Blair and Thatcher and and others illustrate how sort of momentarily attractive those kind of decisions can be. There isn't always a enough consideration of the long-term political and strategic consequences of that, which I think brings us back round to that kind of role of the Foreign Office and really good intelligence and analytical advice about Britain's place in, in the world. So uh, yes, in some form, and all of those things uh, could and should be covered.
0: All right. So that's a vote for an inquiry. And given there are quite a lot of parliamentarians of that view as well, and quite a lot of the former military chiefs, it's very possible that there will be one. Though um, my own view, having seen some of those decisions of military chiefs out in Afghanistan, I think they will also be in the spotlight. Well, let's turn to the point that Alex just raised There at the moment is just our second bit on what this means for the wider world, for the balance of power and for international relations with a changing role um, of America. Lucy, what should we make of America under Joe Biden and in the future?
2: Well, it's 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 a grave, gravely serious um, shift that we're seeing occurring, in my opinion. You know, I spoke to a UK diplomat in the wake of uh, Joe Biden's speech this week in which the president said, you know, America will no longer use military campaigns to remake nations, essentially announcing that Washington isn't prepared to be the world's policeman anymore. A UK diplomat sort of said to me that the West is sort of shell shocked by the US's sort of conduct in, in 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 Afghanistan. The sort of unilateral decisions it's taken to just withdraw troops at its own self you know self imposed deadline. It, it is incredibly serious for the West. You know, I I hadn't realised before I started kind of covering defence for the Times just how much the UK's defence and therefore foreign policy is so totally. I'm um, hooked to, to the bandwagon of the U.S. I think the unwillingness of America to step forward, to really live up to being a global superpower, has huge repercussions um, for NATO, which was already kind of hanging on a thread at the end of Trump's administration. You know, it's well-documented his ambivalence, his threats to withdraw Washington from the alliance altogether. I think there needs to be urgent, serious uh, reappraisal in both Britain and Europe. Um, about defense and foreign policy going forward.
0: And Dan, what do you reckon about the alliances, uh, NATO, other alliances we've got? Um, should those all be rethought if the US is as isolationist and retreating as Joe Biden has suggested?
1: I, I'm going to sort of slightly disagree with, with with Lucy in that I think we were, if we were surprised, we were fools um, because the long drift of US policy since since um, you know, George W. Bush has been sort of progressively less international engagement. You know, Barack Obama said, uh, you know, of the Iraq war, you know, don't do stupid stuff. You know, the idea that the Americans were going to engage in a string of interventions after all that fresh interventions, I think, was was for the birds. Of course, we saw a different tone uh, as we did in so many things on under Donald Trump. You know, and perhaps the surprise has been that, I guess the surprise has been that Joe Biden went round at the G7 at the NATO summit and said America is back, which, you know, and then people interpreted that as a stronger commitment to internationalism and of course he had signaled by then the retreat from afghanistan but the bit that was surprising i think was that he was, repeatedly the white house the the, the the connection between the white house and downing street has been really poor throughout this crisis and and downing street has repeatedly been either not consulted by the white house or slightly struggled to find out what the white house is thinking or spent several days somewhat in the dark so for example at one point Joe. Sort of in in the first week of the airlift, there was real deep concern in Downing Street at high circles as to when would the US actually withdraw? Would they go before August the thirty first? Could they cut and run? Would they hang on longer? Because that was, of course, what people were trying to do. And for days, Britain did not understand the US's strategic intention, and that's incredibly surprising. You couldn't imagine that in the Blair Bush era, for example, or in any number of previous US UK eras. So. Uh, uh, In terms of rethinking things, I think that Britain Britain needs to understand that it's going to be in a world where it can't, you know, it's not going to be on the inside track with the Biden White House and and, and and the US in quite the way that it was. And that is, yeah, potentially very problematic and certainly leads to a massive scaling back of ambition. And so yeah, there's going to be a, need, a real need to kind of rethink what the strategic alliances can do. And one last thing on this quickly, I mean, what there had been talk about was a big pivot, this Indo-Pacific tilt, a big pivot to, you know, NATO facing China, you know, countries like Britain helping the US in the kind of sort of naval battle for naval supremacy or what have you in the South China Sea, all of which sounds like and feels like nuts right now. And and, and the idea that the West is in any way sort of capable of, of, of somehow coordinating and, and taking a more robust response against China, you know, it is, 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 feels very, very unlikely. It seems to me that if Britain really needs to think its real focus needs to be on Russia, you know, the real sort of hostile state that's nearby and think hard about what alliances are needed to, to sort of keep keep Russia contained.
0: And perhaps leave China to the US if it's prepared to do anything. That is a question itself. Alex, you've seen these these discussions from inside the heart of government. What does this change in the US-UK relationship mean?
3: Yeah, one as as Dan was uh, and Lucy were talking there. One sort of slightly counterintuitive point on NATO, I wonder actually, is you could see the moment in two thousand and one, NATO was uh, sort of uh, desperately searching for a role, and and after the nine eleven attacks, invoked Article Five, the um, collective defense attack on one is an attack on all. Moment you you could see that as a sort of moment of maximum hubris. Uh, NATO has been dealing with the consequences of that ever since. There is a world in which, yes, absolutely, the the US is looking more inward and retreating. But another reading of that might be that it will focus more ruthlessly on its uh, strategic interests and be potentially prepared to make targeted interventions where they're needed. And, and that might include the original uh, purpose of NATO uh, to face off against uh, Russia. So I think it, it's potentially quite dynamic and it's not yet clear exactly which which direction that will go in. On the internal UK-US uh, dynamics, it's, you know, it won't surprise uh, anyone to hear that the relationship with Washington absolutely obsesses politicians and senior officials in London. The tea leaves are are, are read in, in minute detail. Uh, again, I don't think they will know exactly what the fallout from this is likely to be, but will be urgently seeking reassurance from contacts in the White House and the rest of the administration about continued uh, relationship. Again, all that said, goes to Lucy's original actually, the intelligence and defence uh, uh, establishments are so intermeshed with the Five Eyes network. There's a lot of underpinning ballast that actually saw the UK-US relationships through quite a lot of the Trump traumas. Uh, and so there's, there's quite a lot of institutional support for some of this there. So that will be reassuring uh, some officials in London. Uh,
0: um, a rare, reassuring note on this. Well, let's end the podcast by just developing these points about British government and the state of the government and what all this has meant for it and its key players. And Alex, I wondered if you could just pick up the things you were just talking about and just um, take us into the perspective of Boris Johnson. Do you think this is going to play well for him, badly? Will he be able to claim that he took troops home?
3: I think uh, it partly explains the difference in the uh, US and British reporting of it that you mentioned earlier, Bronwyn, that uh, the the sort of bringing the troops home resonates a little bit less here than it does on the other side of the Atlantic. But I mean, he can claim something of a success for that. Clearly, the overall exit from Kabul and uh, Afghanistan has not been a success for the Johnson administration. I would be a little bit surprised if it had really serious long term consequences for him and for the government as a whole. It's striking that most of the uh, unfriendly fire on the back benches uh, from Tom Tugelhat and um, others has been directed at Dominic Raab rather than at the Prime Minister personally.
0: And to an extent, to Joe Biden as well.
3: Yes, yes, yeah. it, exactly. It's you know, it's it's not Johnson's war. It's not seen as Johnson's um, war. I think the more troubling domestic political question for him will be the reputation for competence. So it's another uh, chalk in the list of criticisms for of this government for its sort of essential uh, competence. My hunch, though, is that the debates we're about to go into this autumn over spending, whatever happens on COVID backlogs in public services will will take over. And this this summer, intense as it's been seem quite a long time ago by the time we get to Christmas, which, which brings its own danger, of course, that Afghanistan, global Britain, future of our role in the world ends up getting overlooked because the domestic politics is, is just so difficult.
0: Thanks for that. And Dan, uh, Ben Wallace, uh, perhaps a name that hadn't had much cut through before this, has had a good month as Defence Secretary Dominic Raab has had a bad one, particularly bad week. Where do you think this is going?
1: Well, the clear, there's a clear winner and a clear loser, and you've just outlined them, which is, you know, Ben, ben, Wall- you know, ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, and indeed the military have actually, you know, in one sense, had a good uh, good retreat, you know, perhaps it is the sort of, like, you, know, you know, in Dunkirk, you know, perhaps Britain's most heroic moments come in desperate evacuations. Ben's looked like, you know, Ben's been there every day uh, at the Ministry of Defence in charge of operations, and and you know and, and what's really been needed in this crisis has been air powered not the kind of airy sort of new aircraft carriers that the defense review perhaps talked about or even boris johnson once briefly got excited about uh, uh, and again the RAF have done an extraordinary job and we've had a sort of a thousand paratroopers on the ground you know being brave and doing you know doing their absolute best to get as many people out as possible in a narrow time frame so it's quite clear the mod have done well conversely um uh, uh, the Foreign Office have had a clearly a, sort of not only have they had a sort of catastrophic uh, uh, period administratively uh, they've had thousands and thousands of cases have been sort of brought before them uh, uh, Afghans who might be uh, you know uh, eligible for asylum These they've been called special cases they've been sort of quite got a, a name uh, um, these are people anything from you know Afghan judges uh, MPs particularly female MPs civil rights activists women's rights activists gay rights activists all sorts of people who might have a claim to co- to the UK because they'd worked with the UK in the past, or the serious risk of. Uh, and serious risk from the Taliban and, and basically many more people came forward than the Foreign Office realised. They didn't have the capacity to handle it. They didn't even read the emails according to a, uh, a scoop in the Observer over the uh, over the weekend and they've sort of left behind thousands of people. They don't even say how many. I don't even know if they know how many who might have had a claim to come here. So it's been catastrophic. That's rebounded on Dominic Raab who frankly never recovered from the fact that he was on holiday in Crete in a luxury hotel luxury hotel no less and had to face down allegations that too much time sunbathing and whether he'd been boarding and this oh, is right. no place for a foreign secretary to be. You know the rules of British politics are simple: when a crisis starts, you fly back home straight away, and it doesn't matter as was briefed that Downing Street said, you know, you stay out longer. So this has been a disaster. And as for Boris Johnson, well, I think there are, as as has uh, uh, just been said, there are an awful lot of other issues that will, I think, will you know, come to the fore. He rides above, r- rises above this fray as he always does is the foreign secretary who's in trouble. The people who are concerned about what's happening in Afghanistan are probably at the liberal interventionist wing of British politics, which is on the down, you know, the old Blairite part of the Labour Party, which is relatively weak, and certain parts of the conserv- Cameroon sort of wing of the Conservative Party or Cameroon types who uh, sympathise with that view, but also not not very power- you know, powerful critics, but not, you know, not in charge. So the only constituency that I would wonder about would be that kind of constituency of, of veterans. Uh, you know, the British Army recruits disproportionately from the Midlands and the North of England. For red Wall, seat, you know, Red wall seats come into the. Uh, I am thinking. About really
0: interesting that. point. Really interesting point, which isn't often made.
1: Uh, I think- so, yeah, that will be my final point. You know, what, yeah. what how will that, you know, what was it all for? That, I would just wonder if that narrative might cut through a bit.
0: Thank you. And Lucy, what about the asylum, the task for the Home Secretary, trying to keep out people coming by boat, but trying to get hold of all kinds of Afghans who are still trying to come out over land borders? This is quite tricky, isn't
2: it? Yes, it's it, it, it's a huge problem. Not least, you know, I went down to uh, Heathrow with Priti Patel last week to meet some of the um, Afghan refugees um, arriving in. Just extraordinary scenes. You know, some people Without shoes, I saw a man, you know, blood spattered outfit, you know, suggesting he had, he had potentially been attacked by the Taliban, as indeed border officials told me they had had confirmation from some of the arrivals had happened. Um, some of these people were arriving without documentation. And I think that that presents a real issue, you know, for, for the Home Secretary From a security perspective, frankly, just to make sure that people are who they say they are. There have been cases of forged documents, um, impersonations, any sort of terror threat um, is a big task um, for the Home Secretary. Of course, you know, she's fallen under a huge degree of opprobrium, including uh, from the Prime Minister this year, for the record numbers of migrants coming across the Channel in small boats. The refugee crisis we could yet see from Afghanistan and the Taliban takeover, could could see that um, multiply yet further, and I think we also have to recognise, as well as, as the traditional challenges for the Home Secretary, there's also a big task ahead for the Housing Secretary. When I spoke to, to border officials at Heathrow, they they said that you know huge families were coming in, and I saw that with my own eyes. Spoke to you know family of nine, reports of a family of up to twenty members. I think was the largest uh, heard of coming in last week. But the challenge for how to resettle such big families when, you know, four or five bedroom council houses and indeed even private rental houses, um, you know, uh, face a nationwide shortage. There are a lot of different fronts on which I think that the government is going to have its work cut out in the months ahead.
0: Great. Well, thank you for making that point, And we'll be following those in the months ahead. But for the moment, that's it for this edition of Inside Briefing. And my huge thanks to Alex Thomas, Dan Sabah, And Lucy Fisher, brilliant to speak to you all. If you like this podcast, do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. Do head to our website for some fantastic events coming up next week. On Monday, I'll be interviewing Professor Neil Ferguson, an epidemiologist whose name will be, I'm sure, at the front of your minds and has been throughout this coronavirus response. And then on Tuesday, I'm talking to Dame Louise Casey about how the government should rethink its support for the poorest people after the pandemic. You can find out more at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. We've also published uh, quite a few new publications this week, including an assessment of Chancellor Rishi Sunak's Tricky Autumn Decisions. You can read it on our site too. Parliament's back on Monday or next week. Politics is anything but business as usual. At home, certainly, but sadly for so many even more so in Afghanistan. Thanks for listening.